Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers Festival. In this episode, we steam northwest to Helensville to hear Marcus Lush speak about the creation of his award-winning TV series from 2004, Off the Rails. Uh, it's actually a surprise I'm here because I don't normally talk about trains <laughs> and having made the show which was the greatest thing I'd ever done I went into something of a depressing spiral or the Raurimu spiral, as I call it, because there were tunnels and long, dark patches. And Murray rang and said, will you come and speak to those people about the trains? And I never answered the phone and replied. And then about three months later, the brochure came out with my name on it saying I was going to talk about trains, so here I am. (laughs) And I don't normally go out in public. And in fact, I avoid train people like the plague. And I got off the train at New Lynn and this guy says to me, I loved your train series. I used to hate you. I think you were strange looking. (laughs) So talk about giving with one hand and taking away with the other. What can you say to that? I used to hate you. I thought you were strange looking, you know. Train people. And I'm not a train enthusiast. And no one I've met is a train enthusiast. And when you say the word enthusiast... It's not like a car fan or a movie buff or a plane freak. When you say the word enthusiast, your mouth goes into a snarl. Enthusiast. Enthusiast. So I'm certainly not a train enthusiast. I love the landscape of New Zealand, and I think there's no bit of landscape that rail hasn't made better. And I now realise why people don't call themselves train enthusiasts. Because I've met train enthusiasts, and I've had letters from train enthusiasts, and train enthusiasts are strange people. (laughs) And I don't mean that in a bad way, but it seems to me that when there's an Asperger's class of children that are drawn to the railways, that's what they love. (laughs) If it's quiet days for Asperger's, they're at the railway track, they love the sound, and they love the motion, and they love the speed and they don't, make, they don't make eye contact with people. And I've found since I have gone down that railway road, I've become more and more isolated and more and more Asperger's-like. And all I want to do is buy a ganger's hut on Trade Me and put it up at Bluff and live in it and read books. Because I'm a reader, I'm not a writer, so I'm really here by false pretenses, but I've never met a train I didn't like. I grew up in Remuera with three uncles and 12 cousins, but not Uncle Quinton because he lived on a sugar lighter at the bottom of Queen Street, and he was the wacky uncle. But, But growing up in Hobson Bay, my first memory ever of every morning was the train coming along Hobson Bay. And that noise, if you grew up there, some of you will know it, is unforgettable because it's not the Doppler effect. The Doppler effect is when you're in a train and you're going past the signals and the pitch changes. But what happened in Hobson Bay every morning is the train had come along 
the what would you call it? The um, the the causeway across Hobson Bay, and it would come to the middle bridge, and what was suddenly would become incredibly loud as it went over that middle bridge. It would be amplified right through the house. Then we'd go back on the causeway, and the next bridge that would happen again. And that's I think really where that noise of the train got into my head. And every morning, I woke to that noise. I was also, as a child, what you would call these days OCD. In fact, what they have called me these days is obsessive-compulsive. And um, I was a step counter and a lamppost counter. (laughs) And I couldn't turn a radio off unless the sentence had been finished. And I used to play this name with, uh, always with car number plates that I would rearrange the numbers so they were closest to the year we were in and calculate the difference between that year and the year we were and have a factor so that would be a 12 or a 14 or a 28. I'd go 2017-1972-18 and stuff like that. So I was a nutcase as a child. But what I do remember really early talking about that obsessiveness And I've since learned from psychologists as we do this stuff in high stress and we form neural paths. But my most memorable memory is catching the Vulcan rail car from Stratford to Akahakura. And in the old days, they would have power lines beside the train. And these power lines weren't like the power lines now. They were tightly taut. There was about six lines, and they went down like that. And I remember every time going to see my grandmother, being so low, I couldn't see over the railway track, and my head would just follow the railway tracks. And I can still clearly remember that as my most vivid memory, is just being down in the rail car. I can smell the leather of the rail car, or the, pot, or the um, leatherette, at the, see the purple, and can just see. And I still do that in my head. If I'm quiet and trying to see, I still do that rocking, which is just me in a train looking at the railway, railway line, the, the power lines. So whether that was a time of stress or a time of love for me, I don't know. Um, In 1985, I moved to Australia, and my father took me to the airport, and he said to me, be careful in Australia, they don't have diagonal crossing. And he says, also, he says, don't get involved in stilt theatre, which which I thought was a a great thing for a father to say, really, because he had a great loathing of those sorts of things. And I didn't get involved in street theatre, I became a railway steward. Um, I wanted to go on the doll, and they sent me to do some tests, and next thing I knew, I was in a purple maroon uniform, going between Sydney and Juni, and Sydney and Moolumba, and Sydney and Melbourne, pouring drinks on the train. The best job in the world. The absolute best job in the world. Uh, I, I fell in love with someone in New Zealand. I came back to New Zealand, and her and I, one night in New Plymouth, went down to the railway station in 1987, and we sat there, and we drank a cask of wine, with the guy that was the railway station manager. And after the train left, I said to him, when does the next train leave? He said, that's it. <laughs> he said, that's it. The station's closed. And he says, just remember, Marcus, wagon wheels have no friends. <laughs> and when I get the railroom tattoo, Rairimu spiral tattoo on my back finish. That's the next tattoo I'm going to get as well. (laughs) Wagon wheels have no friends. The best thing I've ever heard. In 2000, oh, no. um, What happened for me then was I, um, in the year 2002, 
John Banks became the mayor of Auckland and I thought, fuck it, I'm out of here. <laughs> I thought the last... I thought the last thing I want is a causeway through Hobson Bay. I thought if they're going to go into cars instead of trains, I'm out of here. And I thought, where shall I move to? I want to live by the sea in a place that's north-facing. And I looked at a map and I thought, it's bluff. <laughs> and I moved to bluff. And I don't know if you, any of you people have been to bluff, but it's just a hunk of granite. It's not volcanic. It's an igneous intrusion, and there's a solid hunk of granite that we all live on, and it's absolute paradise. It's the best place I ever moved, and I knew I belonged there. And when I got there, I needed a job. And I only ever done radio. So I got a job on Radio Fovo in Southland, which would be the world's least easy to pronounce radio station or to spell. F-O-U-V-E-A-U-X. And they gave me the job because I couldn't find anyone because there was two radio stations in South and there was Fovo and there was Classic Hits. And Boggy Marsh was the DJ at Classic Hits. He'd been number one for 30 years. <laughs> in fact, he was, he was so big... I can't even describe how big he was, but they gave me this job down there and I thought I could knock him over in six months. I was going to write a book on it called The Battle of Boggy Marsh and he was going to be an easy beat. Because his, his style of radio was completely from the 1960s and he used to do birthdays each morning with Bertie Budgie. And he actually had a Bertie Budgie and in the year 2000, Bertie Budgie, as one of the stunts, went to Hollywood for a film role and when Bertie Budgie came back... On the plane, there were 10,000 kids at the airport to meet the budgie. <laughs> and that was the stranglehold he had on Southland. Now, the thing I'd never really... Is anyone here from Southland? It was good to hear Norman Jones talked about before. Was anyone here from Southland? No. The good thing about Southland is that everyone there hates themselves. <laughs> everyone that has left has had to. They've gone to university or they've moved away because they've been smart or they've been attractive or they've been gifted. So those people that are left there are the ones that are really down on themselves. And they love Boggy because they're loyal and he's never left. So I move from Auckland to become a radio show host in, uh, in Southland. They think I'm just fucked. They think I must be the worst broadcaster in the world to actually move to the place that they've spent their whole life trying to get out of. They couldn't even look me in the street, in the eye. And I moved down there and I did three years of breakfast show. And I used to speak to these correspondents in Tuatapri and Winton and Ojai. We'd talk to the pubs and everyone I talked to, you could hear them listening to Boggy in the background. <laughs> there was no point in me being there. And in fact, the sales reps would come to work and tell me what Boggy was doing, which was the same thing he'd been doing for the last 30 years. And I bought my house in, my house in Bluff, which cost me $27,000. And I went with a real estate agent called Bill Ray, Billy Ray, to buy the house. And uh, we signed for $27,000. I talked them down for $28,000. And when we left, the woman and her 
kids. They were Greek Moriori, the Barrises. They were in tears. And I says to Bill, they're crying. They're crying. Was, is everything all right? I said, how much did they pay for it? He says they paid 36000 for it. And I says, why were they crying? And he says, they thought they'd never sell it. <laughs> you see, down there, a house is like a, down there, a house is like a car. It just diminishes. You've got the fastest declining population in the Southern Hemisphere. They were beside themselves. So I moved there, and it was fantastic. And I got a, jo- I got a chance to go to Egypt to do an intrepid journey. And I thought, I'll show you Southerners that I've still got some sort of cachet the, with the broadcasting networks of New Zealand. I'm going to go to Egypt, and I'm going to lord it over you because you're going to watch it. So I went to Egypt to film an intrepid journey, and we're on a train between Cairo and Luxor. And just in that program, it says that show is going to be on next week. It wasn't. That was on three years ago. The show on next week is going to be about the Trans-Siberian. And if ever of you have always thought, God, I've always wanted to do the Trans-Siberian, the answer is you haven't. It's really, really dull. <laughs> so I've probably saved you $10,000. But I'm on a train between Egypt between Cairo and Luxor with a woman called Mel Rakin, who I'm very fond of, and I said, we should make a show about the railways in New Zealand. And she says, do you think there'd be half an hour in it? <laughs> and then my confidence was gone, so I said, oh, well, I've always been into it. We came back to New Zealand, we sent TV and did a proposal to do a show, a series about the railways. And... The programmer of TV1 had just lost their job. And the, the theory when you lose your job is to, is to hand the poison chalice to the next programmer. <laughs> so she thought, I'll show them. I'll request 12 shows about the railways. And this show became unmentionable. So I just was devastated. I'd said I want to make this show. I'd got the money. And everyone I spoke to, they just said, no one's going to watch that. No one's interested in train spotters or anorak wearers. (laughs) And then it occurred to me that not only was no one going to watch it, but I knew nothing about trains. (laughs) And when you're going to make a show about trains, you're going into the eye of the hurricane because train spotters, by definition, that's someone that knows far too much about something. So I was making a show I knew nothing about for a country that didn't want to watch it. (laughs) So we decided to meet in Bluff and to lighten us up, someone had a video of the Art Deco train weekend from Napier to Ormondville, which was called the Peas, Pies and Pud. It was fancy dress. And if ever you've seen... In my mind, there's only one thing more depressing than a group of railway enthusiasts. It's a group of railway enthusiasts, drunk, dressed in 1920s clothes. You know, the sort of the, the, the flappers with the cigars, and I just saw that and I thought, these people are complete freaks. So I thought the show was unmakeable. And then what I decided to do, I decided to just read everything I could, every book I could about New Zealand. And I started up reading about the Lady Barclay, which was the first locomotive in New Zealand that ran in Invercargill. I mean, at this stage, I didn't even know what a train was. I didn't realise a train was an engine that pulled some other things. 
a locomotive on its own wasn't a train that was just a locomotive but I've read about the Lady Barclay which was the first train that ran on New Zealand which ran on wooden whales then I read Bill Manhire's book about his father who was a publican in Southland about the Mosburn Railway Hotel and how there was a guy there if you shout him a pint of beer would drink it standing on his head <laughs> and I thought that's that's the way the world used to be a trick like that and you could drink forever and suddenly I realised there were some tangential, tangential stories to the railways that were, I read about Trollope and Kipling and Clements who all tried, Samuel Clements, who all started their journey through New Zealand on train from Bluff. And I just opened myself to it and all the stories started pouring in. I started reading about Lindley Hood um, her book about Minnie Deans and how Minnie Deans was incredibly passionate about trains. And I realised that whole area I'd been living in was really the most railed up part of the country. And when I'd moved to Bluff, I was overlooking the end of the main trunk line. And that's why I was so happy there. It wasn't the granite. It was the fact that I was a railway person. I just didn't realise it. And what we did is for the next year, the three of us just toured through New Zealand um, and just tried to tell all the stories we could. I read the biography of Truby King, which is a great book, and um, how he had a forestry plant at Tarkopra and used to catch the train there. I read about Seacliff and all Janet Frame's books about going down the line to the lunatic asylum. And suddenly all these stories came together. I started reading about the Tamuka potteries and how they made the railway cups there, which I never realised. I met a guy who collected railway cups who took me on digs. We went to Oterra, and suddenly this whole thing that I knew nothing about and wasn't interested in, I just got completely enveloped by. And because I was learning all these things, I thought if I could take the audience through this journey, that people that would knew nothing about the railways, by the end of it, would have some sort of understanding about the people I'd never met Russell Glendinning, you know. Everywhere you went in the South Island, everyone talked about Russell Glendinning, who's the steam guy who drives the Kingston Flying. Well, by the time I arrived in Opua a year later, I was probably the one guy in the country that's met every single railway person. So I came from someone that knew nothing to someone that's ridden every bit of rail and just had the most fantastic time. And, um, and thanks to Melanie and Jake that shot it, we made a series that we think... We really, wanted to, we really wanted to show New Zealand in the beautiful way it was. And uh, that's why we called it a love story, because throughout the journey, certainly for me, and I can't speak for Mel and Jake, but, but I had an absolute passionate transformation with my love of this country. And that was because, because of the rails took me to the sort of places I didn't know I was going to go to. And... Um, and uh, and I know I won't make any TV again because to make that was so enjoyable. And I also know too that, um, that when I heard Morris G read about the, the, the train ride from Henderson into Auckland City and to have to catch that gorgeous train today down in that dismal vandalised railway station past all those atrocious infill housing backing right onto the railway. They've ruined Auckland and I don't know if Bob Harvey's here or um, I certainly think some of the Auckland mayors should be responsible of what's happened to this city because it's been destroyed, particularly from a transport angle. And um, I'm ecstatic the Greens have got in, and I'm a vehement...
I'm a vehement believer in the railways, and I guess now you could say that I'm happy to say I'm a train enthusiast. I've never, ever met a train I didn't like. And when Murray says to me, you can come on this train trip and we'll pay you, and I'm saying, you're not paying me for that. I'm not turning the one thing I love into a job. So thank you, and thank you for coming here, and thank you for listening. Uh, I, dare, I dare not try and even match the wit and passion and wisdom of Marcus. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Marcus, for what I knew would be a fun and stimulating talk about off the rails. Thank you very much. We now it's time to move on, as Helen would say. Let's move on. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.